0: Coming up next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air, a psychologist discusses treatment for people with destructive behaviors.
1: When a two year old becomes aggressive or tries to smack, you can pick them up, you can move them, it doesn't hurt nearly as much. However, then once that child develops and is seven, eight, ten years old, um, they're much bigger and stronger. And now all of a sudden, those behaviors become much more problematic in the natural environment.
0: And a clinical pathologist explains why you might want to donate your baby's umbilical
2: cord blood. There's actually other diseases, and that's the coolest part. The only currently FDA-approved use is for bone marrow transplant. But in the research setting, there's some really cool data. And under our research protocol, this can be used for other diseases.
0: All that, plus a selection from The Healing Muse, coming up after the news. This is Upstate Medical University's HealthLink on Air, your chance to explore health, science, and medicine with the experts from Central New York's only academic medical center. I'm your host, Amber Smith. Today, we'll hear about the public cord blood bank in Syracuse. But first, we'll explore destructive behaviors and treatment strategies. If you or someone you care about engages in destructive behaviors, you'll want to hear what psychologist Will Sullivan from Upstate Center for Behavior, Development and Genetics has to say. He's with me in the HealthLink on Air studio. Welcome, Dr.
1: Sullivan. Thanks for having me, Amber.
0: Let's start with the definition of destructive
1: behaviors. Yeah, sure. So, um, I- My area of specialty lies in the treatment of severe forms of challenging behavior that are often displayed by individuals with autism or some form of related developmental disability. So when I say destructive behavior, what I'm referring to is, you know, uh, aggression, perhaps or property destruction, throwing items, having a tantrum, um, or maybe some more severe forms of behavior like self-injurious behavior, so like slapping their own head um, or, or banging against a wall or something along those lines. So are these
0: behaviors that stem from or have like a developmental disability root, or or might they be things that are, um, I don't know, more situational?
1: Um, well, from my perspective, uh, I, I like to think of these behaviors as not necessarily um, a representation of the child's personality. So I don't see that if a child comes to see me and they're engaging in destructive behavior, I don't come at it from the perspective that this is a bad kid. Or they're mean, or they're trying to be vindictive or hurtful in some way. Rather, I view those behaviors as learned behaviors, um, and many of my patients might have difficulty expressing their wants and needs in an appropriate way. And so, I see there, these destructive behaviors as communicative in some way. They're trying to tell us something, whether it be something that they want or s- that they need to get out of a particular situation. Um, and that's kind of how I how I view those. So you behaviors. kind of
0: you have the role of trying to interpret what. Um, what they need, exactly. based on exactly interesting. So, um, it are there genetic? Is there a genetic cause to some of the destructive behaviors you see?
1: Um, you know, perhaps there might be some genetic um, correlates that might make a child more or less likely to engage in those behaviors, but. It, From my perspective, the reason that those behaviors continue to occur is not simply because of some internal reason, but because the behavior works for them in some way, right? So if a child starts to have a tantrum or engage in some aggressive behavior, there's likely a reason behind that. And as parents, caregivers, teachers, um, if we see a child that's upset, we want to try to make that behavior soft. We want to try to help them. but. To do so, that might be maybe a caregiver tries to give them um, a a calming toy. Or maybe a caregiver goes up and starts to try to talk to them or might reprimand them and say, no, it's not nice to hit other people. Um, Or it says, well, I can see you're upset. Let's take a little break right now and we'll go for a walk. All very reasonable things to do in the moment. And oftentimes it works in the moment. The issue lies is that the child may learn, well, if I want to get my calming toy or if I want to get some attention Uh from somebody or if this situation is just too overwhelming and I need to get out of here, they might use those behaviors to get those needs met, which then leads to an increased chance of those behaviors occurring again in the future under similar situations. So as you mentioned before, like are these things situation-specific? And I would say yes, most of the time that they are.
0: Some of what you describe seems to me um, typical for any toddler, right?
1: Yes, absolutely. Um, However, as a toddler might engage in some of those behaviors, over time, they start to develop more functional or appropriate communication skills, Mm -hmm. whereas some of my patients, they might just not develop in that same manner. Not to say that it's better or worse in one way or the other, just different just different. And if those behaviors continue to produce desirable outcomes for the individual, well, then they're going to continue to engage in them. Um, uh, Oftentimes, these behaviors, we talk about them as being problem behaviors or maladaptive behaviors. Well, it's problematic and maladaptive for us, but let's put ourselves in the child's shoes. They have figured out how to get their needs met very efficiently and in an effective way, right? So if I want to get out of this situation and i lash out and start to throw a tantrum and that works for me well then they're adapting to their environment to get their needs met part of my job is to help figure out well what is that underlying reason why they're engaging in those behaviors and how can I teach them a better way to communicate those same wants and needs because those needs are still going to be there we just need to teach them a different way to communicate to express that in a more appropriate way and just telling them we don't want you to behave that way that's not enough
0: (laughs) Right. I mean, I mean,
1: not not typically that, that doesn't go, um, it doesn't work for them in the same way that it might work for other typically developing individuals.
0: So, how young of children are we talking about that you would work with? When when do destructive behaviors become apparent?
1: So, I work pediatric populations anywhere from two years old to twenty one years old. Really, are patients that I might see. Many of my patients fall in more of the school age range, anywhere from like seven to twelve. Okay, And for many of my patients, these behaviors may have been occurring at a very young age. However, when a two-year-old becomes aggressive or tries to smack, you can pick them up, you can move them. It doesn't hurt nearly as much. However, then once that child develops and is seven, eight, ten years old, um, they're much bigger and stronger. And now all of a sudden, those behaviors become much more problematic in the natural environment.
0: And that's when someone comes to see you. Yes. Now, it makes me wonder how parents, do you see that parents um, blame themselves in some cases for the way the child is behaving?
1: Unfortunately, yeah. Certainly, I think that they they start to take some of the blame. Um, I want to be very clear. I don't think it's at all their fault. Um, Many of those responses, as I said before, are certainly reasonable things that any good parent would do. If your child is upset, going to want to go and talk to them and try to calm them down you're going to try to meet their needs as quickly as you possibly can and in many instances typical parent behavior works to suppress these sorts of destructive behaviors in, in many kids but sometimes those responses they have different effects for my population so for example if you're trying to help calm down a child that has typical language development and you tell them this is not nice to engage in this sort of behavior that might resonate with them and they can then, you know, not engage in those things in the future. Whereas another child, if that's the time that their parent comes and gives them attention, then they might be more likely to do that in the future.
0: Okay. This is Upstate's HealthLink air. I'm your host, Amber Smith. I'm talking with Upstate psychologist, Dr. Will Sullivan, about taking care of people with destructive behaviors. Um, If someone with destructive behaviors is not treated, Do they turn into an adult with adult-type destructive behaviors, things like um, gambling or uh, drug abuse, alcohol abuse, binge eating, things like that? Is there a connection?
1: Possibly. Ultimately, if those behaviors go untreated, they're likely to continue to occur. Now, whether or not those things turn into larger problems like drug abuse, that would ultimately depend on that individual's environment as they move through life so if okay. they are placed in an environment where drug abuse starts to become prevalent and goes reinforced then perhaps um, i think that might be a little bit of a stretch to link those two together but it's certainly possible you know the real underlying thing here is that if, if destructive behavior continues to work for an individual by meeting their needs they're going they're going to keep doing it to do it until they learn a better more appropriate way to deal with those situations
0: So I guess I'm, I'm, what I'm getting at is there uh, an importance to the earlier you can take care of this, maybe the more benefit to be reaped over time.
1: Certainly. The longer that a destructive behavior continues to contact those sources of reinforcement, the more difficult it might be to change in the future. You know, if we got kids very, very young and start to intervene as early as possible, then we can really alter that developmental trajectory to put them on a path um, to engage in more appropriate behaviors, equip them with appropriate communication skills rather than engaging in destructive behavior. The longer that that goes untreated, um, the more likely they are to persist in those behaviors. Okay.
0: Okay. Do you see this uh, equally in male as, as in female?
1: Um, I, I think in our patient population, oftentimes uh, there's probably a larger proportion of males that we see. Um, now, whether or not that's a function of destructive behavior or the underlying developmental disability. So, for example, autism is much more prevalent in boys. In
0: boys, right. Okay, so things that are kind of attached to that. Mm-hmm. Would lend, okay, that would make sense. Now, talking about um, older adolescents, uh, are they able to recognize destructive behaviors in themselves? Do they see that they have a problem when they are asked to come and see you, or, or do they recognize it? Are they self-aware?
1: That's an interesting question. Um, I think that would depend on the child's cognitive functioning. You know, their ability to engage in that sort of metacognition thinking about their own thinking. Um, And so, the extent to which someone has those capabilities, I would imagine that most of them that I've worked with are certainly aware. Um,
0: So, I know it must um, vary depending on the age um, and cognitive abilities of the patient, but how do you go about um, establishing a relationship and then working to stop or alter? The destructive behavior over time?
1: Sure. Well, uh, so I guess I'll just kind of walk through yeah. how, how I approach a case. So I have a child that comes in, let's say, for example, they're, they're aggressive. Um, I might start to try to tease apart what situations are likely to evoke those sorts of aggressive behaviors and what are the responses that are occurring in the natural environment that are likely to maintain that those behaviors. So what I'll do is set up different situations. So to give you an example, maybe in one situation, I might ask the child to do schoolwork or to engage in some activity that they may perceive to be aversive, a situation that's been reported to me by a caregiver or a teacher that, hey, when you ask, when we try to get Johnny to do math, that tends that's to 20. lead to aggression. So I might put him in that situation. If he engages in aggressive behavior, I would respond just how caregivers or teachers would in the natural environment. So if they say, you know, he becomes upset, so I might back off a little bit and say, you know, when you're ready, we'll begin again, I would replicate that same situation. Now, if I see problem behavior and destructive behavior continue to increase, I would compare that with a control condition, simply not asking them to do schoolwork. And so when you see differential levels, of behavior under a certain circumstance and then are able to quickly shut it off by removing that situation, then that's telling me something. Maybe this child's engaging in destructive behavior to get out of schoolwork. That's just one example. I might test um, the possibility that they're using that to get attention or to get some sort of tangible item. Um, And I would do that in, in a bit of an experimental design to demonstrate that yes, this is why this child is engaging in this behavior. Once I know that, okay, so again, going back to my example, I know that Johnny is becoming aggressive because he wants to get out of his schoolwork. Well, then that can tell me how I can teach him a more appropriate behavior to get that same need met. So I might teach him to say, to ask for a break. And maybe it's a vocal response. Many of my children are nonverbal. And so I might teach them how to do a manual sign language sign for a break Um, or use an augmentative communication device to ask for a break. In some way, somehow, I want to replace that destructive behavior with something more appropriate, that both of them meet the same functional outcome of getting a break. Then once the child's equipped with a new skill to get that same consequence met, then I can help teach them to tolerate times when they can't have what they want right now. And so I will slowly introduce schoolwork. For example, might ask them to do a little bit and a little bit more and slowly increase that expectation to, to help them cope with those difficult situations.
0: Because it might not just be math. There may be other things that happen. Certainly, so.
1: certainly, certainly. There's lots of possible reasons why these things may be happening. Um, but my approach is trying to get to that underlying reason why it's happening. So I'm not just trying to slap on... You know, okay, if you do your work, you can get an M&M. Right. That might work to an extent, but if destructive behavior still produces the desired outcome, then the child's probably going to continue to engage in that behavior until then, Until I can teach them a different way to get that need met.
0: So you want to come up with lasting solutions that, that can continue.
1: Absolutely. Now,
0: this doesn't sound like it's a quick fix. It's not a one-visit fix,
1: right? By no means. Okay. By no means. This is this learning. It's learning this is not a magic bullet this is not a pill that's gonna make the behavior go away you know I can't reach inside a kid wiggle some things around and then they they don't engage in aggression anymore that's just not how this works because just as quickly as they learn to engage in destructive behavior they can learn to engage in a more appropriate behavior and we need to shift the focus on how can we equip them with the appropriate skills to get these needs met so they don't need to use destructive behavior
0: are medications ever part of this?
1: Yes, but that's not my area of expertise.
0: As a psychologist, you don't prescribe.
1: No, I do not.
0: But do you work with um, children who have a prescriber who is? Yes. Okay. Are the parents part of this? Are they Absolutely. in the sessions with, with you? and? Uh,
1: so typically when I would have a patient come in, I want to first try to figure out why that behavior is happening then i want to try to develop an individualized treatment for that child and during that process um, i don't want to expose parents to those situations where destructive behavior may continue to occur that could be dangerous there's lots of possible negative things that could happen so i want to figure out what works best for that child then once i feel confident like yes okay here we go i got a treatment package that i know works well for the kid then i have to then train the caregiver the teacher Joe off the street, whoever might be working with that individual, then I need to train them on how to um, implement those procedures. Ultimately, even if I develop a good treatment in clinic, until those treatments are actually implemented out there in the real world, that's when you're going to see change in the child's behavior that's meaningful.
0: Oh, well, that's interesting. That's good to know. Well, thank you so much. My guest has been Upstate psychologist, Dr. Will Sullivan. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink On Air. Next, on Upstate's HealthLink On Air, what is umbilical cord blood used for? University in Syracuse, New York. I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. After a baby is born, the umbilical cord is cut and usually discarded as medical waste along with the placenta. But umbilical cord blood is rich in stem cells, which have been used to fight leukemia, lymphoma, and some 80 other life threatening diseases. The Upstate Cord Blood Bank is a public cord blood bank that collects and stores donated umbilical cord blood. And with me in the HealthLink on Air studio is its medical director, Dr. Matthew Elkins. Let's start with the news um, mm-hmm. that parents who deliver at Cross Hospital can voluntarily donate their baby's umbilical cord blood to the cord blood bank now, right?
2: Yes, That's we're a- thrilled. This is our second site. So we started where the our cord bank is actually located next to community our community campus. and that was the first location that we worked out a lot of the kinks.
0: So at- people who've been delivering at community since 2017 have been yep. able to donate.
2: Since okay. February 2017 we have been able to collect donations there at community. Krauss is our first expansion, so it's the the first time we're adding another hospital. And we're thrilled to be able to provide that. Um, Krauss has been great, the staff and the faculty and the patients have all been really thrilled to to have this opportunity there.
0: Well, tell us how the donation works. Um, This is something parents have to think about and decide on ahead of time, right?
2: Ideally, um, that was one of the, we talked about working out the kinks. That was one of the kinks that we had at community was having this whole discussion when mom comes in when she's in labor. And that's a bad idea. She has other things on going on a little bit. Um, So we have actually made a uh, booklet that we are asking for all of our providers to hand out ahead of time so that mom and dad and family and whoever um, have time to really think about it and plan and consider if that's what they want to do. We don't want we don't want anyone pressured into or out of donations. So ahead, of, as much ahead of time as simple language as possible, and uh, providing our staff to answer any questions that that uh, parents might have. So we're thrilled to be able to now offer it to the population that are getting that are delivering at Krause.
0: So ideally, it becomes part of the a woman's birth plan, mm-hmm. but there's not an impact on labor and delivery. This no. happens after, right?
2: No. So what happens is. Um, Mom goes into labor, and I don't want to gloss over that, but uh, <laughs> once baby is born, there is time when the placenta is still attached. Um, the The umbilical cord is clamped and cut from baby, and there's still time where we're waiting for the placenta to release, and that's the time when if umbilical cord wants to be donated, it can be donated then. So um, again, not to, not to oversimplify it, but the whoever is doing the birthing, whether it is a midwife or physician, they're just waiting for that placenta to detach. Trying to pull it off early is a bad idea. So while they're waiting there, that's the perfect time to actually collect the, the blood that's in the still in the umbilical cord and in the placenta, which would otherwise just be thrown away as waste. And collect it. We are we have a process set up with uh, both the nursing staff at Kraus and at With Community to get that set and packaged and sent over to our cord bank while we would process it, um, do all the testing, do all the evaluation, um, and tr- hopefully have a unit that's set to help somebody else.
0: So there's no uh, needle stick to the baby at all. The blood's no, not coming from the no. baby. It comes from, once you've cut the umbilical yes. cord, it comes from the other side.
2: Yeah, it comes from the umbilical cord and the placenta. So it's not mom's blood. This is not, and it's not the umbilical cord. There's no pain for mom or for baby because this is, on the placental cord that's not innervated to either mom or baby at this point.
0: Now, can this be done if you have a C-section delivery?
2: Absolutely, as well. Okay. Actually, we get some of our best units from our C-sections. Interestingly, we're not sure why, um, but the same the, the same uh, delivery, whether it's a vaginal delivery or a C-section, there is still going to be that time when baby's out, cords cut, and you're waiting for the placenta to detach. You have to wait for it to detach. Otherwise, it, if you try to pull too hard, it can rip apart and mom bleeds is bad. So you've got that delay during that delay. If mom wants to donate it, um, that's a perfect time to collect it.
0: All right. Now, once you have the cord blood and it's, um, taken back to the cord blood bank, what do you do with it? You, yeah. it's, it's stored there, but how do you, how do you go about storing it? How do you categorize it? Right. What testing do you
2: do? So there's a number of steps that go into place, but just to simplify it down, um, the main things we want to do are make sure that it's a good unit, which means there's enough stem cells that it would be clinically useful to transplant. A one cell isn't enough. There has to be a, a enough that there is a good therapeutic dose for a patient. So we want to make sure that there's enough of them. We want to make sure they're viable, so we actually grow up some of them to show that they actually make all of the cell elements of the blood we also want to make sure that's safe, though. So we actually do sterility testing um, there in the in the in our cord bank to make sure that that unit doesn't have bacteria. Because if somebody gets a bone marrow transplant, the last thing they need is exposure to other infectious agents. Is other, that
0: like the testing that's done on, like, if you donate mm-hmm. blood?
2: So we do all of the same testing and more. Okay. Um, and then we all. The other thing we want to do is, we get a unit of. A few hundred mls of blood we don't want to freeze all of that because we don't want the plasma we don't want the red cells what we really want is just the stem cells so we actually will autom- we'll have an automated system that will get it down to just the stem cells in about 30 mls and that's in a smaller cartridge that we can freeze in a controlled fashion least amount of damage to the cells then we'll prepare the cells for, for freezing freeze them and store them in our liquid nitrogen tanks um, so we can retrieve them later if it's needed. Uh,
0: indefinitely? Can they so stay there forever? We can't
2: ever? legally say it's indefinite because we've only been doing cord banking for about 23 years now. And we do have some of those earliest ones that have been thawed out. And at 21 years, they were fine. And we know from other research studies that once you freeze things in liquid nitrogen, all cellular processes stop. And so time has stopped for those cells. So... In a real way, yes it's indefinite. Legally, twenty one years. Okay. <laughs> and then right. in four years when they thaw out some more, we'll be able to say twenty five years. Twenty
0: five years. <laughs> this is Upstate's Health Link on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, and I'm talking with medical director for Upstate's Cord Blood Bank, Doctor Matthew Elkins. Now, let's talk about why a family might want to donate mm-hmm. the, the cord blood. Is it is it pure
2: altruism? That is, that is the only thing we can guarantee is that you will feel altruistic. Um, it really is a donation, just like donating whole blood at a Red Cross blood drive or some other um, blood supplier's blood drive. It truly is a donation. Um, and, and,
0: the, and there's no charge. There's no mm-hmm. fee. There
2: There is no charge to, to mom or the family. There is no insurance charge for this collection. There's also no payment. So, again, the only thing I can promise is they'll feel good. Um the uh, So there's no reimbursement, there's no cost. Um, why would they want to? It really is altruism, and again, this is something that's just going to get thrown away. It's not that it would be going somewhere else, or it's not making uh, impacting the health of baby or of mom. So I guess it comes down to why wouldn't you?
0: Now, what <laughs> if later on in life, you your child, um, whose umbilical cord blood was donated, Need stem cells mm-hmm. for some reason, are they able to come back and
2: retrieve them? So, there, and we encourage that. We've talked with a lot of um, donors about this. If they get into that situation, they're welcome to call back. And if we do have that cord blood unit and it hasn't been distributed and we have it stored and saved, we will make, we will set that aside and make it available for that person. The downside of that is if it's not. If it wasn't tagged for them and flagged for them at the time of donation, it might have gone or already gone out to help somebody else. So it might not be there, um, which we feel terrible at that point, but that, that is it is a donation. Um, there is In the industry, there is private donations. There are other companies. We are hoping to offer this as well in the future, but we are not at this point. And that is a private donation that is a separate contract where the cord blood is collected and the family pays for that to be stored for their use only. Um, and if that's if that's what the parents want to do, I'm all for it. Um, we want to we want to offer this service for the people who don't want to privately bank it instead of it being thrown away. Um, let's make it available for somebody else to use
0: if uh, if we do make if if a family does make a donation um, and it's later used to help someone, mm-hmm. it, do they get notified?
2: We actually don't at this point. Um, One, because there is confidentiality issues. Um, Once we distribute that through uh, an organization like National Marrow Donors Program or some of the other uh, listing agencies that that, uh, match up the right person with the right unit, um, that is really anonymized. We don't know about the recipient. They don't know about the donor um, because it really does, according to the Federal guidelines at the FDA, it has to be anonymized, and we want to protect the anonymity of both the donor, baby, and also recipient. Um, we have had people call back and ask for updates. Um, we usually just thank them for their donation and tell them we're we're going to make sure it's used in the best way possible, but we can't really give out details.
0: So if I make a donation, mm-hmm. um, those stem cells could eventually. Go somewhere else in the world. Yes, absolutely. So it's a an international.
2: Yes, uh, it, it depends. We've got there are multiple registries. So we don't, uh, through the cord bank, we don't actually contact transplant centers directly. There are groups like the National Marrow Donors or World Donor uh, Blood Donors worldwide. There's multiple that actually maintain registries and they talk with transplant centers, identify patients who need uh, transplants and need a source of new stem cells. And then they contact us. So we, we actually will upload one, uh, units that are appropriate for transplant. We'll upload into their system and say, we have these available. And then they actually run the system to match up. Oh, we've got a new patient. Let's look through the registry. And if the one that matches that makes the most sense is the one that you donated, that's when that would be matched up, and that's when they would contact us. We would send that out, and it would be used.
0: So it's similar with blood typing. It has to match yeah. um, blood type and other things too, right?
2: Yes, it's just much. It's actually harder to match because for blood typing, there's, there's four blood types. There's A, B, O, and AB. Um, oh, see, my other hat is transfusion, so you got me on that. <laughs> uh, so that's relatively easy to match. So here in the hospital, we will get in a bunch of A's, and that can be matched to A's. But for bone marrow transplant, it's actually the human leukocyte antigen, HLA. It's also called MHC, major histocompatibility, because we like giving lots of names to confuse people. Uh, But that has to be matched, and that is much more difficult to match. Instead of there just being four possibilities, there's thousands on thousands of possibilities. That's why it's so hard to find that correct match. But the better match, the better the outcome for the patient. So... That's why we we have we want to participate in this worldwide community of cord blood banks to increase the number of available units, so that when that person needs one, there will be a match that's the best possible for them.
0: So you need um, the most diverse pool of donors as you can find, so that you have a broader means to maybe fill yes. need.
2: And that that is actually a major need because um, there there are other sources for. Um, blood stem cells. Uh, there are adult donor stem cells that can be collected via apheresis, which is another one of my hats, or via bone marrow. So bone marrow transplants. You can get them from adults. Uh, but what we what we see nationwide and worldwide, uh, but particularly in the U.S., is there are a lot of donors that are Caucasian. We don't see representation from minorities to the same extent that we see the national demographic. So for people who are of any ethnic minority, their likelihood that they will find an adult donor is much less. And that's where the, the greater variability from cord blood, and cord blood is also a little more permissive because it's young, um, that uh, provides another um, option for those people to be able to find a correct match. Because Unfortunately, the, when we talk medically, the difference between de- different ethnicities is not just skin deep. These HLAs have different frequencies in different ethnic backgrounds. I see. And then people who are mixed racial ethnicities, they may have a very unique HLA mix that we can't find anywhere else.
0: Wow. Well, let me ask you, is there any uh, mother who should not donate stem cells?
2: Yeah. And we do. We have a very... F- a very short list of who we don't want to donate um, and that is because we want the focus to be on mom so anytime there is a risk of mom risk of baby so we're right now we have four criteria we have if mom is uh, less than 36 weeks because if it's early in pregnancy if it's a preemie that you don't at that time, we we don't want to inter- again we don't want to interfere sure. with mom's health or baby's health. So don't worry about cord blood at that point. Preemies are need a lot of extra care. Um, same thing if there's been pr- no prenatal care, um, so mom's just showing up in delivery in the in the hospital. One we don't want a decision like this made rashly. Uh, okay, we don't want to dissuade people, but. She's got other stuff on her mind. And we also don't know if there have been other testing or anything else. We don't have anything back to look at. Um, third one is if there's if there's more than one baby on this pregnancy. So if there's twins, triplets, up to octuplets. I hope we don't see any more octuplets. Um, at that point, all of those twins, this is not 100%, but many twins at birth are kind of like preemies because they've been fighting for a small amount of space and a smaller amount of blood. Um, we focus on them and the last one actually has to do with the fact that we are um, we uh, submit ourselves through the Institutional Review Board at both Upstate and Krauss and now and at St. Joe's when we go there and each of the places and one of the requirements is adults are 18 and older less than 18 there is a hard and firm legal line there and there is Correctly, concern about younger patients for any sort of research or any sort of donations that they would be an at risk population. So, if mom's coming in and is delivering at 17, there's nothing wrong with her cord blood cells, but because we're under IRB, it has to be 18 and older.
0: Okay, gotcha. Stick with us for more from Dr. Matthew Elkins on Upstate's HealthLink on Air. Upstate's HealthLink on air. I'm your host Amber Smith, and I'm talking with Medical Director for Upstate's Cord Blood Bank, Dr. Matthew Elkins. Now, as I understand it, um, the Upstate Cord Blood Bank is one of only two public cord blood banks in New York State. What is the service area for our cord
2: blood bank? So, um, so you're correct. There are only two cord blood banks. The other one is down on uh, in New York City, and they take public cord blood, cord blood collections from two. New York hospitals, and one in Pennsylvania. Here in, I believe it's Pennsylvania, it might be connected, somewhere else. Uh, for us, for the upstate core blood bank, we are currently only taking collections at Community, and we just started at Krause, uh last month. That was June, if you're listening to the podcast later. Um, so we just started taking collections at Krause, and we're hoping to expand and take collections at St. Joe's in the near future.
0: And then there's a lot of, you know, rural Mm -hmm. hospitals in this upstate New York, um, and that might be in the future?
2: Yes. Um, We now we are different in that we are a cord blood. Um, Patients and moms may have seen an option for uh, private donation. And there are a lot of companies that do offer private donation at whatever hospital you're at. They mail you a kit or mail it to the hospital. Um, We don't do that Our focus is really on the best quality of cord blood unit possible. So, um, and that's a decision that I have made. So if people aren't happy about it, I'm sorry. Um, That I don't want to send out a box um, because the quality of those units won't be as good compared to when we do collection at a hospital where we're talking frequently And giving training to the nursing staff, to the physicians who are doing the collection, where we really have a good rapport um, with that hospital. And we have all of the processes in place to make sure from even before mom gets there, everything is in place and everything will be done to the best possible quality.
0: It sounds like it's simple just to (laughs) take the blood from the umbilical cord, but there's a lot of science that Mm -hmm. went into exactly how and when to do that, right?
2: Yes. And, um, some of the things, so there's a lot of different steps. We do try to make it as simple as possible. Um, the simpler it is, the fewer steps can go wrong. But, um, if the cord blood cord is not cleaned off before the needle is inserted, um, then you potentially introduced bacteria. And now that unit is contaminated and everything downstream is a waste. Um, we cannot put that into a patient um, who has no bone marrow, that we just can't do that. Um, if uh, the cord blood is drawn and we get you know, 20 ml, so it's a really small amount, it's a little quarter of cups worth, that makes everybody feel better, but that's not useful. That's not enough stem cells to actually be clinically useful. So even though everyone's gone through that and mom has gone through the donation process, and that's great, and we, we would still want people to donate even if they can only get 20 mLs, we will find a different use for that, but it's not going to be able to be used to help someone who needs a bone marrow transplant. So really a lot of our training uh, for our collection um, staff at both hospitals is make sure it's a large unit because that's the one that we can really use clinically to make the maximum impact on a patient.
0: So since the Upstate Cord Blood Bank opened in 2017, Mm -hmm. um, how many units have we accumulated since then?
2: So we've got just over 600, uh, so there's been just over 600 donations that have been made, um, which if everyone's listening, thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And of those units, not all of them were able to go through all the processing and be stored for potential transplants. Um, About a third of those we actually have stored frozen in our freezers
0: so what do you do with the others
2: so the other ones uh, so again any of them any of them that are contaminated or if we don't have all of the paperwork done we know that that will not be able to be used as a transplantable unit if it's too small um, so there's not going to be enough stem cells um, we can freeze those and some of the ones that we have frozen we know are small but we do have other uses for the cord blood um and this, this takes a little bit of explanation because I want to make sure people understand this. Um, the cord blood um, units that we are using, we meet all of the requirements of the FDA. This is a regulated blood product that can go for transplant. Uh, that means we have to meet a lot of these standards for the FDA to make sure that it is a useful unit, that it is a safe unit, that it is good quality. Um, And in order to do that, we have to do a lot of validations. And we have to not just say, yes, this freezing process will keep all the cells good. We have to thaw out some of those units and show that they are still viable and that we meet that criteria. We have to do that for every single one of our steps. So there is a number of units that we have to use in order to do these validations. Now, our preference is going to be using those Units that we can't use for transplant. So the ones that are bacteria contaminated, we we can still use that for some of our validations. Um, the ones that are too small, we can use those for some of our validations. Um, the ones that don't have paperwork, as long as we have a consent that we are allowed to use them, but they may not have filled out the paperwork saying, did they have a risk of infectious exposure? Mm-hmm. That's one of the requirements. Um, then we can't use that one for transplant, but we can use that for validation. It's still, it's still the same cells, so we can use those. Um, so we always want to use units that we can't use for transplant for those validations. Um, the, what,
0: what about research?
2: And that's the other use we can use. For units that, no again, we cannot use for transplant, we're gonna divert those either to our internal use for validations Or we will actually make them available for other researchers. Researchers right now locally, but we have had um, requests nationally and even internationally. There's been interest in using those units that again we can't only the ones we can't use for transplant, um, using those units as a source of stem cells for increased research. And like you mentioned at the beginning, right now there's 80 diseases that could potentially be we could potentially use cord blood for therapeutic benefit. There's probably more. And the way we find that out is by researching cord blood. And there has, that has to come from somewhere. We'd rather, again, use these units that are too small instead of throwing them out, either using them for our validations or, sorry, or making them available for these researchers to maybe find a new use. And maybe in the future, we will find a use that uses those smaller units. And now in the future, those small units aren't just validations or research, but may have a therapeutic use.
0: Now we've heard about leukemia and lymphomas, of the blood cancers, being treated mm-hmm. with um, bone marrow transplants, stem cell mm-hmm. transplants. Um, what other types of? Di- are we just talking about different cancers, or are there other yeah. diseases?
2: There's actually other diseases, and that's the coolest part. Um, it's dangerous asking me about this because I might go on all day. <laughs> <laughs> the so the current, uh, according to the FDA, the only the only currently FDA approved use is for bone marrow transplant. But in the research setting, there's some really cool data. And we're, um, and under our research protocol, this can be used for other diseases. Um, this includes a lot of degenerative diseases. So many people, they, they may not ever be touched by a leukemia. They may not have one in their family. But almost everyone has some family member that has had neurologic decline, like Alzheimer's, or neurologic damage, like a traumatic brain injury, um, strokes, uh, neural core defects or neural core damage. Um, there is current research looking at autism and all the families that are touched by autism. Um, one there, uh, there's a researcher down at Duke that has done some awesome work on cerebral palsy, um, that's, cerebral palsy is typically, uh, damage due to low, um, oxygen delivery to the brain of baby at birth. Um, again, there's a lot of research on figuring out exactly what's happening, but, um, that's a really, um, difficult treatment for these patients because we have not really had anything. We have lots of things to help them cope with their their disabilities due to cerebral palsy, but there's never been a treatment that actually allowed their disabilities to get better. Well, this researcher down at Duke, Dwayne Kurtzberg, has actually shown that patients who were transplanted for hematologic diseases, who also had cerebral palsy, their cerebral palsy got better. So going yeah. from patients who, um, they talk about different developmental tracks. Um, if someone with cerebral palsy is in a wheelchair, there is very small likelihood that they will ever be able to walk with crutches or walk unaided. Um But Dr. Hertzberg has actually had patients that were in wheelchairs and now we're walking with crutches or walking unaided. That is huge. We've never had anything that really made a type of change like this. Now, it's still research. It's um, It's still only done under that research rubric. And there's a lot of steps in there. There's a lot of questions still to be answered. But that... Even if none of the other diseases panned out, and there's a lot of them that are panning out really nicely, even if we found nothing else, that being able to offer that hope and offer that treatment to parents of patients with cerebral palsy is huge.
0: Well, Um, and even just thinking about donating cord blood, you know, mm -hmm. you want to help a person, but wow, if you could mm -hmm. contribute to advancing that, that's pretty amazing.
2: Yes, it's, it's it's awesome. Again, it's I could go on all day. There's so many different diseases and so much um, research that is really exciting. Um, Much of it is still not FDA-approved, so it's not ready for prime time. But, boy, the future looks bright.
0: Well, I want to make sure listeners know they can learn more information. There's a website, upstatecordbloodbank.org, and that's got all of the information. Um, I even saw there's a... uh, the the forms that you have to fill out ahead of time and those are they're pretty extensive they're several pages they
2: are they are
0: um but people can download them there and get a mm-hmm. sense of what information you'll be collecting from them and
2: absolutely and the um the forms on there are phone numbers list our phone numbers on the website anyone has any questions at any time give us a call um we're happy to set up tours and you can see the cord bank sometimes it becomes more real when you see it and you can talk with myself with my staff. We'd love to talk with people about this and just make sure everybody's comfortable with exactly what's going on. The questionnaires are extensive, and I apologize to everyone who has to fill them out. But we we do not ask any questions for curiosity. It's all what's required. Um, we cannot list a unit without being able to answer these specific areas, and almost most of them relate to: Is there any infection? Is there any risk that this cord blood will transmit an infection? these horrible infections, HIV, um, mad cow disease, all these things. Somebody gets a a transplant, the last thing they need is one of these horrible diseases.
0: Right. Well, this has been very interesting. I want to let listeners know they can learn more about the Upstate Cord Blood Bank at uh, www.upstatecordbloodbank.org. So thank you, Dr. Elkins, for being here. Sure. My guest has been Dr. Matthew Elkins from Upstate's Cord Blood Bank. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. And now, Deirdre Nealon, editor of Upstate Medical University's literary and visual arts journal, The Healing Muse, with this week's selection.
3: Childhood is supposed to be all loving innocence and light. Kaelin Tree, a poet and translator in Staten Island, is the author of the chapbook, Quiet in the Body. She sent us a poem that shows us a less happy vision of childhood, when a teacher lacks empathy and a student lacks a voice. Here is, that girl is a bag of water. The crying girl is justice, seven, longest eyelashes, always blinking water back inside. No time for that, says Miss Pat, and too soft. I don't know who she means. I think me, soft like a jellyfish with no sting left. My job as teacher's aid is to hold a column of words, snap fingers to the tune of girls reading by rote, cap, cape, mop, mope, Can, cane, Sam, sane. Silent letter E makes the vowel say its name. The bathroom signal is a raised hand with fingers crossed high in the air. Ms. Pat says, you should have gone at snack time. Girls squirm in place. I circle the room. I can't offer permission. Great job, I say instead. I'm so happy to see you all working hard. I'm not good, says Justice. I'm just quiet. I want to say, Justice, I am also a bag of water. The doctor said you need a specialist when I thought I was regressing at 22 years old, wetting the bed, waking every time to feel a shot of pain through my pelvis. Sent for ultrasound, my bladder collapsed on the paper-covered table the way a sea sponge releases what it holds. Diagnosis. Chronic interstitial cystitis with overactive bladder, triggered by stress and or trauma. Justice scoots around the floor on her knees, hyperventilating. Ms. Pat gives in. You can go to the restroom, but you'll have a demerit. Justice drags herself out the door. Wet salt streaks her cheeks, dots her shirt. There are things I want to say. I am also a bag of water. A smear of girl justice. I wonder if we cry for the same reason. We don't know what else to do.
0: This has been Upstate's HealthLink on Air, brought to you each week by Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York. Next week on HealthLink on Air, a neurosurgeon explains his new way of thinking about hydrocephalus. If you missed any of today's show, listen on demand on our website at healthlinkonair.org or do a podcast search for one word, HealthLink. I'm Amber Smith, thanking you for listening.